You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. The reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7. It's on page 678 of the Church Bible. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then... Banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigour are meaningless. Now we're continuing Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of the youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, for the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain. And the keeps of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease, because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street close, and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds, but their, all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights, and dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire is no no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. He warned my son of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring in every deed to, into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matt, I'm one of the leaders here at City Church, and it's my privilege to conclude our series on Ecclesiastes, uh, just as I kind of uh, set it going a few weeks ago. Um, We've been through quite a journey with the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, it is a remarkable, remarkable book. Not an easy book by any stretch of the imagination, but one that is profound and that has lots of application for our lives. 
And as we come to this final part of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we're going to need God's help to understand and apply it. So won't you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this afternoon trusting that you are the God who speaks and that you, knowing the details of our hearts and lives, have put things in motion that what will be shared over the next few minutes together will be precise and pertinent to various things that many of us are going through, and that we should therefore have every expectation that you will speak to us and apply these words of truth to us, to give us hope for those who are despairing, to give us comfort for those who are wounded, to give strength for those whose strength is failing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My, um, my grandmother was a, a wonderful woman, a wonderful woman, and I would have loved to have introduced her to every single one of you. She was, um, I guess by any standard, she would probably fit into the category of being eccentric. She was, and we loved her for that. She kind of specialized in the ability to um, uh, break into private property uh, just because she was curious to find out what was behind a door. Uh, she kind of specialized in kind of going into places that they said no admittance under, you know, no circumstance whatsoever. She would go, because she just wanted to find out. She was just a, a, a wonderfully eccentric, curious lady. And when, um, when she was diagnosed with throat cancer, and then she was notified that it had actually spread... We, we didn't know how long we would have with her, but we knew the time was short. But we knew there was some time, and, and she was a believer, and so with the time that we were able to have with her in those final months, uh, people called round. Good Christian uh, friends from church came and prayed with her. They sent lots of cards and lots of flowers, and many wonderful memories and times were had and reminiscences. Uh, she prepared well for her death. But when my grandfather died, just a few years later, he was found on the floor of his living room because his heart had stopped suddenly as he made his way to his chair. And there was no one with him when he sank to his knees for the last time. Death comes to every single one of us. And for some of us here, it will come swift and utterly unexpected. And yet, yet I imagine all of us all of us, deep down, believe that in our case, in our case, when it comes to me, we kind of believe deep down that I will have time to prepare. Now, Koheleth, 
whose teachings we've been exploring over the course of the last few weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, is a a person who's seeking to understand what does it mean to thrive as a human in a world, in our world, if you are to take out of the equation any sense of a loving relationship with God. And so Quaheleth, over our our weeks in Ecclesiastes, in these 12 chapters, he's explored um, looking for happiness in building projects that would make grand designs look very cheap. He's explored looking for happiness in life, business, professional achievement, in entrepreneurship that would have seen him sail through whatever series of The Apprentice. He has experienced sexual exploration in the search for happiness that would have made subscribers to OnlyFans blush. He has pursued happiness and entertainment that would have stolen the limelight and the paparazzi cameras from any catwalk or red carpet. And his conclusion repeated around about 28 times in 12 chapters is that everything is havel. Uh, That word translated as meaningless or vanity in our Bibles uh, has two meanings, has two uses, if you remember. The first one, it can mean fleeting or temporary. Um, It can have this idea that something looks solid, but when you grasp it, it, it's as solid as grasping smoke. And the second meaning of chavel, that Hebrew word, can mean enigma, that is mystery. It's the idea that life just does not work out as planned. And in this final portion of the book of Ecclesiastes, it comes to Quaheleth's mind the one thing that is non-negotiable. And it is this, the certainty that every single person is going to die. And his summarizing advice at the very end of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his big adventure, in the light that everything is havel, is you need to prepare now for your final destination. And this final passage will give us an insight how we can do that today. I've got two points, and the first one's this. Anticipate the end of your life. Anticipate the end of your life. Now, if you are to anticipate the end of your life, it sounds quite a kind of bleak or dark or macabre thing to do, but it's here in the passage, so we should address it. If you are to anticipate the very end of your life, it will lead you to examine your life. And, and this is why Quaheleth keeps bumping up against the question. He does this right throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, just a moment here and a moment there and a moment here, but he does it particularly at the very end. He bumps up against this question, am I spiritually okay? Am I spiritually okay? Look with me at chapter 11, verse 9. Because he's wrestling with the tension at the very heart of the whole teaching of Ecclesiastes. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Do you see that? Pursue happiness at all costs, at all costs. And yet remember, you will one day stand before God. And, and this is at the heart of what Quaheleth's wrestling with. The realization of 
pursuit of happiness, and yet one day you're going to have to meet your maker. Now, Kohelet, he's too thought through. He's too honest to be the type of friend at a birthday party who says, hey, blow out the candles and, and have the, the, the best year ever. You're going to achieve everything that you want this year, uh, everything your heart desires. That is going to be your year this year, and you deserve it. That is not how Quelleth would be at a party. Quelleth at a party is more likely going to be, I'll clap and I'll cheer when you blow out the candles, but I will also turn to you and say this year is likely to be a massive letdown, a huge disappointment, and oh, by the way, remember God is watching you, so make good choices. Yeah, he's going to be fun, right? Which is why in verses 1 to 7, 1 to 7, of chapter 12, he writes this poem. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes largely finishes. It's his poem where he imagines his final years, his final months, his final minutes. He imagines what it's like to be old. But notice that his thoughts in this poem keep on returning to God. Verse 1, remember your creator. Verse 6, remember him. You see, after 12 chapters of of looking for meaning by taking God out of the equation, as Koheleth considers and contemplates death, it's almost as if he's coming against the limitation of his materialistic thinking. It's like he's come to the wall, the end of the line, for his under-the-sun viewing of life. I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Truman Show. I have um, very mixed memories of Truman Show. I kind of like the film, uh, but it was also uh, a girlfriend of mine dumped me just before we went into the cinema. So I have very mixed, very mixed feelings about this, this film. And if you, if you don't know the Truman Show, you know, at the end of the... Truman's this guy who basically a whole TV show has been... Uh, kind of created around him. He doesn't know that he's in a TV show, but everyone else is actors within his world does, and everything is filmed. And he gets to the point where he realizes that actually his world is actually unsatisfying. He realizes his world is fake. And he realizes that his world is really just a film studio, and he crosses the water, and he gets to the end of the line, he gets to this wall, which is the studio wall, which is painted to look like sky, and he slams his hands on the wall, realizing this is the limitation. Is this as far as he can go? And then a door in the wall quietly opens, and he's given this choice. Would he stay? Stay in something that he's only ever known, or would he go out into what is beyond? Like Truman, like Koheleth in chapter 12, he's at the edge of the world that he's known all his life, a world that is utterly familiar, and yet it is not enough. Koheleth finds himself getting to the limitations of his world and asking the pursuit of happiness, having all of this wealth, having all of this achievement, is it enough? Is there something Beyond, is there something more than life under the sun? 
And and for Koheleth, it's almost as if as he contemplates death, he knows that there is something beyond. He knows that there is someone beyond, and he wants to meet them. He, He kind of is aware that there is a God, a judge beyond there, and he wants to be known and welcomed by this great and heavenly judge. And so he finishes his thoughts and his sayings over these 12 chapters by posing the question to us, really, at the end of our time in Ecclesiastes as a church community. He poses this question to you, which is worth thinking through. Are you ready to meet your creator? Are you ready to meet your creator? If you are not yet a believer, and it's wonderful to have you with us, You can't have trekked with us throughout the last 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes where it's explored all sorts of things in life and not come to the point of decision of do you just want to pursue a life of happiness but take God out of the picture or do you actually want to go through the open door to that which is beyond and even meet and encounter this God for the first time? If you are a believer, this book poses the question to you directly, are you distracted by the the things of your life, the ways of the world, the stresses, the challenges that you face? And yet, you have utterly neglected to consider that there will be a moment that this experience of this world will come to an end, and you will meet your creator face to face. Are you ready to meet your creator? Come with me to our our second point. Readjust your heart to fear God. Readjust your heart to fear God. As Kohelet's thinking about death, and he's, he's almost longing for a hope that there is a God who can grant life after death, his teaching comes to an end in verse 8 of chapter 12. And he says this, I'm translating our passage with that Hebrew word, havel, but he says, havel, havel, says the teacher, everything is havel. And just before the the screen fades to black, as it were, and the credits would start to roll, the narrator who introduced Quaheleth right at the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, he steps back into the frame, the narrator. And in verses 9 to, um, to the end of the chapter, the narrator makes a few closing remarks about the credentials of Quaheleth. It's almost like the lecture's finished and then the, 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 the kind of... Uh, host comes up and thanks the Koheleth, the lecturer, for everything that he said. Well, the narrator in our passage makes these few closing remarks about Koheleth, talks about Koheleth's credentials as a very wise teacher, talks about how famous Koheleth is, talks about how Koheleth's wisdom over the course of these pages of Ecclesiastes has been very helpful, uh, and talks about how the truths that Koheleth has talked about has actually resonated with the lives and experiences of the listener. And there's a reference in verses 11 to 12 about how hard it is to read Ecclesiastes. That's kind of refreshing, isn't it? 
The, the word goads refers to a shepherd's stick that would have had a, a, a spike at the very end where the shepherd would have used it to kind of painfully educate the sheep into which way to go. And I think we can all agree that's a pretty good summary, isn't it, of the book of Ecclesiastes. But look with me at verses 13 to 14 of chapter 12. This is like the crux, I think, of the whole book. The narrator pauses, looks at us, the listener, and and says this, I paraphrase. He says, many of the teachings have been super helpful, but some of the conclusions are a bit wonky, are a bit off. The big key to help you discern what to take from Koheleth and what to leave is this. Fear God and live according to the blueprints that God outlines in the Bible. Now, this phrase, fear God, is one where we need to get into the real detail of it, because there are two ways that the word fear is used throughout Scripture. Uh, The word in Hebrew, for those of you who care for such things, is the word yare, and it can be used in the sense of absolute terror and awfulness, but it can also be used to mean something that's positive and something that's wonderful. It's the same word, but it can be used in two different ways, just like Havel. For example, look with me at Exodus 20, verse 20. Exodus 20, verse 20 says this. Moses said to his people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. You see, it's two words, both are exactly the same word in Hebrew, fear, yare, but one is meant in a very negative sense, do not fear, and one is meant in a positive sense, do fear. I, I want to first look at the negative idea of fear, and then we'll look at the positive idea of fear in Scripture. So a negative understanding of this word fear, you can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. This very day... I will begin to put the terror and the fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. Again, can you see that idea of the word fear there is something to be terrified about? Or you could look at Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 13. Again, it's a negative idea of fear, same word. And this type of fear is often often I think how non-believers will often view the God of the Bible. And most tragically, this type of fear of God is how some Christians relate to God. Professor Richard Dawkins, um, who is a very public atheist, sums up this terrifying uh, version of the fear of God when he said this, He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, 
unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile, tidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He's not mixing his words there, is he? What I'd want to say to Professor Dawkins for that description is I don't believe in that God either. I really don't. But if I did, but if I did, my faith would probably look a lot like Koheleth, who uses the phrase fear of God four times in these 12 chapters. Now, hear me very carefully. I need to be precise on this. I'm not saying, I am not saying that Quaheleth had such an extreme view of God as Professor Dawkins. I'm not saying that at all. If you think of a spectrum, Professor Dawkins might be on that side of this very negative fear of God, and um, Quaheleth is probably far more on that side of the spectrum. But nevertheless, he's kind of in the same category that this God, even if he's over here, this God is actually scary. It's the same category because Koheleth views God as being a God who is without love. He never references God as being a God of love in Ecclesiastes. He, he's in the same category because he perceives God that doesn't have a desire to have a personal relationship with his creation. He, he perceives a God who only looks at you and sees whether you've been good or whether you've been bad. He's in the same category because he has a view of a God who he is quietly suspicious doesn't want the best for you. He perceives a God you secretly believe is waiting to punish you if he catches you out. Now here's the thing, such a view of God like that, such a view of God will lead you to a terror of God that will not draw your heart towards him, but like a spider, and I don't like spiders, I need to say that, Jackie's the one who deals with spiders in our house. <laughs> Like a spider, you will view God with this very suspicious terror. And you will keep an eye on that spider as you would God, even with a sense of reverence about it. But careful watching, lest it move towards you to do you harm. Such a faith in God, shaped by that type of fear, will lead you, like Quaheleth, to compartmentalize God, to put God in a very small box. Keep God at arm's length. Be mindful that you always have to look like the perfect Christian. Be self-loathing when you mess up, assuming that some bad thing will happen because you made a mistake. Such a faith like that, shaped by a very negative idea of fear of God, will make you a dry Christian on an emotional level. It will make you a Christian who is full of pride. You will be proud over those who you consider are worse than you. 
And you will be a Christian who is full of self-guilt when you encounter Christians who you compare yourself with them and you think they are better than you. Like Kohalath, joy in life for such a believer is not found in God. But as Quaheleth has been doing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, true joy is found in pursuing other shiny things like career or relationships or approval or if you're a parent in your children. I once knew um, of a woman who was at City Church actually for a while who had a perception that God was like a boy with a magnifying glass. You know, a magnifying glass where they would, for fun, train the the rays of the sun through the magnifying glass in order to uh, burn plants or kind of fry ants as they walked past. For her, church was a burden. God was a burden. And her attitude in life as a Christian was just to do enough to keep a lid on her own sense of guilt so that she could actually enjoy the rest of her life. Isn't that a tragedy? To go through your entire life fearing God in such a negative way as that. And I wonder if there are some of you here today who would actually put your hand up and say, that's exactly how I see God. That's exactly the dynamic that I have. A reverent terror that means I always want to draw away from him rather than close to him. That is a tragedy. And let me tell you why that's a tragedy. Because that very same yare in Hebrew that means fear has another meaning in the Bible. And to illustrate that, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. It says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is a description, actually, of the Lord Jesus, and it says that he will have the spirit of the fear of the Lord and he will delight in it. Isn't that remarkable? Or look with me at Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commandments. Now, this is really significant because this, I believe, is the meaning of the word fear in chapter 12, verse 13. And it's this positive or godly fear that moves us to obedience, which leads to the question, well, what does this fear mean if it leads to an obedience that isn't from a terror of God? What is this fear if it leads to delight in God and joyful obedience and comes from the very Spirit of God being within us? Well, John Bunyan, the famous uh, preacher and writer, said this, Godly fear flows from a sense of love and kindness of God. Godly fear flows from a sense of love and kindness of God. Now, to get a sense of what this godly fear is, because we're unfamiliar with this word, think of in Luke 7, the woman who we're told was a sinner but has received forgiveness from Jesus is so delighted that she comes to him and with tears she wipes his feet 
with her hair. There's an intensity of her love and response to Jesus that comes from seeing his majesty and his grace. What we're talking about here with a godly fear of God is an intensity of awe. The magnitude of God colliding with the unfathomable realization that God looks at every single thing that you have ever done in the dark corners of your life. The type of thing that if they were to be projected on this screen in front of everyone, you would just wish the whole of the ground would open up and swallow you whole. God looks at every single secret act. And he says... I still choose you, and I still love you, and I promise I will look after you, not just for this life, but for eternity. This is where godly fear comes from. It is the collision of creator and father, the collision of judge and redeemer, the collision of absolute perfection colliding with absolute love. And such a God as that, if you have that perspective of God, will engender within us a right and godly fear. A fear of God that cannot be compartmentalized into two hours of church on a Sunday or five minutes of a quiet time on a weekday morning. Such a fear of God like this will tear through the neat walls of your life. It will tear down the walls between your faith and your workaholism. It will tear down the walls between your faith and your toxic relationships, your faith and your routines of self-harm. And it will tear through those just, just, as God tore through the foot-thick curtain in the temple of Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was killed on a cross. For such a God as this will not be caged. Do you know that? This God brings to you the most pursuing and disruptive love that you have ever experienced. We fear God rightly because our thriving Because for our thriving, he is fearless. We fear God. Because for our thriving, he is fearless. And the cross is the ultimate example of this. Look at the way that Jesus, in pursuit of your eternal forgiveness and my eternal forgiveness, walks right up to death and torture and rips through it with the ease of the Roman soldier's spear that cuts through the flesh of Jesus' abdomen. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis puts it well when he says of Aslan the lion, who's the representative of God, he is good, but he is not safe. He is good, but he is not safe. For God in his goodness and unsafeness, listen, even as we sit here today, he is putting things in motion to strip some things from some of us. For those of you who are in danger of being sucked into idolatries of approval, he is, as we sit here, putting things in motion to bring you into a season where you may well feel more isolated than you have ever felt before. 
For those of you in danger of being sucked into an idolatry of security, things are in motion as we sit here now to potentially bring you into a season of professional or financial uncertainty. For those of you in danger of being sucked into a life of comfort, things may well be put in motion by our God, the creator of the universe, so that you may well encounter people or stories or situations that will lead to a domino effect that will, in however many years' time, lead you to take a missionary post in a far-flung part of this planet to serve Jesus there. Why would such a God do this disruption to our lives? Because in his love for you, he seeks to give you the one thing that Koheleth could not find under the sun. The one thing that secular culture longs for and cannot grasp, and it's this. Your God longs to give you the status of being truly known, absolutely known and yet completely loved. There are many versions of love in this world, but this love alone can only be possible from the God of the Bible. And like any loving father, there is nothing that he will not pluck from your hand if that thing would get in the way of receiving this gift. Therefore, Fear God. Fear him with great awe and with great trembling. And if your heavenly Father has asked you to do something and you are holding back, then obey him. For he has a single vision for the good and blessed destination of your life. And he has no plan B. Therefore, fear your God and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that the protections that we have put in place to find happiness without you are as nothing compared with your ferocious strength to pursue our spiritual health, that there is nothing that you wouldn't take from us in order to give us the true love that only comes from the God of the Bible. Father, where we are aware that we have lost something of the awe of you, I pray that you would restore it. Where we have found ourselves distracted by the plastic disappointments of materialism, I pray that you would cast our gaze once more on the incredible love of the Lord Jesus and may we shudder in delight and joy. But most of all, as we have seen from the book of Ecclesiastes, may our response to this truth be a fear of the Lord that leads us to seek to obey you in every corner of our lives, without caveat or excuse, knowing that you love us deeply and will always look after us.